Chapter 8. Tom dodged hither and thither through lanes until he was well out of the track of returning scholars, and then fell into a moody jock. He crossed a small branch two or three times, because of a prevailing juvenile superstition that to cross water baffled pursuit. Half an hour later he was disappearing behind the Douglas mansion on the summit of Cardiff Hill, and the schoolhouse was hardly distinguishable away off in the valley behind him. He entered a dense wood, picked his pathless way to the centre of it, and sat down on a mossy spot under a spreading oak. There was not even a zephyr stirring, the dead noonday heat had even stilled the songs of the birds, nature lay in a trance that was broken by no sound but the occasional far-off hammering of a woodpecker, and this seemed to render the pervading silence and sense of loneliness the more profound. The boy's soul was steeped in melancholy, his feelings were in happy accord with his surroundings. He sat long with his elbows on his knees and his chin in his hands, meditating. It seemed to him that life was but a trouble, at best, and he more than half envied Jimmy Hodges, so lately released, it must be very peaceful, he thought, to lie in slumber and dream forever and ever, with the wind whispering through the trees and caressing the grass and the flowers over the grave, and nothing to bother and grieve about, ever any more. If he only had a clean Sunday school record he could be willing to go, and be done with it all. Now as to this girl. What had he done? Nothing. He had meant the best in the world, and been treated like a dog, like a very dog. She would be sorry some day, maybe when it was too late. Ah, if he could only die temporarily. But the elastic heart of youth cannot be compressed into one constrained shape long at a time. Tom presently began to drift insensibly back into the concerns of this life again. What if he turned his back, now, and disappeared mysteriously? What if he went away, ever so far away, into unknown countries beyond the seas, and never came back any more? How would she feel then? The idea of being a clown recurred to him now, only to fill him with disgust. For frivolity and jokes and spotted tights were an offense, when they intruded themselves upon a spirit that was exalted into the vague august realm of the romantic. No, he would be a soldier, and return after long years, all were worn and illustrious. No, better still, he would join the Indians, and hunt buffaloes and go on the warpath in the mountain ranges and the trackless great plains of the far west, and away in the future come back a great chief, bristling with feathers, hideous with paint, and prance into Sunday school, some drowsy summer morning, with a blood-curdling war-whoop, and sear the eyeballs of all his companions with unappeasable envy. But no, there was something gaudier even than this. He would be a pirate. That was it. Now his future lay plain before him, and glowing with unimaginable splendor. How his name would fill the world, and make people shudder. How gloriously he would go plowing the dancing seas, in his long, low, black-hulled racer, the spirit of the storm, with his grisly flag flying at the fore. And at the zenith of his fame, how he would suddenly appear at the old village and stalk into church, brown and weather-beaten, in his black velvet doublet and trunks, his great jackboots, his crimson sash, his belt bristling with horse pistols, his crime-rusted cutlass at his side, his slouch hat with waving plumes, his black flag unfurled, with the skull and crossbones on it, and here with swelling ecstasy the whisperings, it's Tom Sawyer the pirate. The black avenger of the Spanish main. Yes, it was settled, his career was determined. He would run away from home and enter upon it. He would start the very next morning. Therefore he must now begin to get ready. He would collect his resources together. He went to a rotten log near at hand and began to dig under one end of it with his barlow knife. He soon struck with that sounded hollow. He put his hand there and uttered this incantation impressively. What hasn't come here, come. What's here, stay here. Then he scraped away the dirt and exposed a pine shingle. He took it up and disclosed a shapely little treasure house whose bottom and sides were of shingles. In it lay a marble. Tom's astonishment was boundless. 
he scratched his head with a perplexed air, and said. Well, that beats anything. Then he tossed the marble away pettishly, and stood cogitating. The truth was, that a superstition of his had failed, here, which he and all his comrades had always looked upon as infallible. If you buried a marble with certain necessary incantations, and left it alone a fortnight, and then opened the place with the incantation he had just used, you would find that all the marbles you had ever lost had gathered themselves together there, meantime no matter how widely they had been separated. But now, this thing had actually and unquestionably failed. Tom's whole structure of faith was shaken to its foundations. He had many a time heard of this thing succeeding but never of its failing before. It did not occur to him that he had tried it several times before, himself, but could never find the hiding places afterward. He puzzled over the matter some time, and finally decided that some which had interfered and broken the charm. He thought he would satisfy himself on that point, so he searched around till he found a small sandy spot with a little funnel-shaped depression in it. He laid himself down and put his mouth close to this depression and called. Doodlebug, doodlebug, tell me what I want to know. Doodlebug, doodlebug, tell me what I want to know. The sand began to work, and presently a small black bug appeared for a second and then darted under again in a fright. He doesn't tell. So it was a witch that done it. I just knowed it. He well knew the futility of trying to contend against witches, so he gave up discouraged. But it occurred to him that he might as well have the marble he had just thrown away, and therefore he went and made a patient search for it. But he could not find it. Now he went back to his treasure house and carefully placed himself just as he had been standing when he tossed the marble away, then he took another marble from his pocket and tossed it in the same way, saying, Brother, go find your brother. He watched where it stopped, and went there and looked. But it must have fallen short or gone too far, so he tried twice more. The last repetition was successful. The two marbles lay within a foot of each other. Just here the blast of a toy tin trumpet came faintly down the green aisles of the forest. Tom flung off his jacket and trousers, turned a suspender into a belt, raked away some brush behind the rotten log, disclosing a rude bow and arrow, a lath sword and a tin trumpet, and in a moment had seized these things and bounded away, bare-legged, with fluttering shirt. He presently halted under a great elm, blew an answering blast, and then began to tiptoe and look warily out, this way and that. He said cautiously, to an imaginary company. Hold, my merry man. Keep it till I blow. Now appeared Joe Harper, as airily clad and elaborately armed as Tom. Tom called. Hold. Who comes here into Sherwood Forest without my pass? Guy of Wisborne wants no man's pass. Who art thou that, that? Dares to hold such language, said Tom, prompting, for they talked by the book, from memory. Who art thou that dares to hold such language? I indeed. I am Robin Hood, as thy caitiff carcass soon shall know. Then art thou indeed that famous outlaw. Right gladly will I dispute with thee the passes of the merry wood. Have at thee. They took their lath swords, dumped their other traps on the ground, struck a fencing attitude, foot to foot, and began a grave, careful combat, two up and two down. Presently Tom said. Now, if you've got the hang, go it lively. So they went it lively, panting and perspiring with the work. By and by Tom shouted. Fall. Fall. Why don't you fall? I shan't. Why don't you fall yourself? You're getting the worst of it. Why, that ain't anything. I can't fall, that ain't the way it is in the book. The book says, then with one backhanded stroke he slew poor guy of Wisborne. You're to turn around and let me hit you in the back. There was no getting around the authorities, so Joe turned, received the whack and fell. Now, said Joe, getting up, you got to let me kill you. That's fair. Why, 
I can't do that, it ain't in the book. Well, it's blamed mean, that's all. Well, say, Joe, you can be Friar Tuck or much the miller's son, and lamb me with a quarterstaff, or I'll be the sheriff of Nottingham and you be Robin Hood a little while and kill me. This was satisfactory, and so these adventures were carried out. Then Tom became Robin Hood again, and was allowed by the treacherous nun to bleed his strength away through his neglected wound. And at last Joe, representing a whole tribe of weeping outlaws, dragged him sadly forth, gave his bow into his feeble hands, and Tom said, where this arrow falls, there buried poor Robin Hood under the greenwood tree. Then he shot the arrow and fell back and would have died, but he lit on a nettle and sprang up too gaily for a corpse. The boys dressed themselves, hid their accoutrements, and went off grieving that there were no outlaws any more, and wondering what modern civilization could claim to have done to compensate for their loss. They said they would rather be outlaws a year in Sherwood Forest than President of the United States forever. Chapter 9 At half past nine, that night, Tom and Sid were sent to bed, as usual. They said their prayers, and Sid was soon asleep. Tom lay awake and waited, in restless impatience. When it seemed to him that it must be nearly daylight, he heard the clock strike ten. This was despair. He would have tossed and fidgeted, as his nerves demanded, but he was afraid he might wake Sid. So he lay still, and stared up into the dark. Everything was dismally still. By and by, out of the stillness, Little, scarcely perceptible noises began to emphasize themselves. The ticking of the clock began to bring itself into notice. Old beams began to crack mysteriously. The stairs creaked faintly. Evidently spirits were abroad. A measured, muffled snore issued from Aunt Polly's chamber. And now the tiresome chirping of a cricket that no human ingenuity could locate, began. Next the ghastly ticking of a death watch in the wall at the bed's head made Tom shudder, it meant that somebody's days were numbered. Then the howl of a far-off dog rose on the night air, and was answered by a fainter howl from a remoter distance. Tom was in an agony. At last he was satisfied that time had ceased and eternity begun, he began to doze, in spite of himself, the clock chimed eleven, but he did not hear it. And then there came, mingling with his half-formed dreams, a most melancholy caterwauling. The raising of a neighboring window disturbed him. A cry of scat. You devil and the crash of an empty bottle against the back of his aunt's woodshed brought him wide awake, and a single minute later he was dressed and out of the window and creeping along the roof of the ell on all fours. He meowed with caution once or twice, as he went, then jumped to the roof of the woodshed and thence to the ground. Huckleberry Finn was there, with his dead cat. The boys moved off and disappeared in the gloom. At the end of half an hour they were wading through the tall grass of the graveyard. It was a graveyard of the old-fashioned western kind. It was on a hill, about a mile and a half from the village. It had a crazy board fence around it, which leaned inward in places, and outward the rest of the time, but stood upright nowhere. Grass and weeds grew rank over the whole cemetery. All the old graves were sunken in, there was not a tombstone on the place, round-topped, worm-eaten boards staggered over the graves, leaning for support and finding none. Sacred to the memory of so-and-so had been painted on them once, but it could no longer have been read, on the most of them, now, even if there had been light. A faint wind moaned through the trees, and Tom feared it might be the spirits of the dead, complaining at being disturbed. The boys talked little, and only under their breath, for the time, and the place, and the pervading solemnity and silence oppressed their spirits. They found the sharp new heap they were seeking, and ensconced themselves within the protection of three great elms that grew in a bunch within a few feet of the grave. Then they waited in silence for what seemed a long time. The hooting of a distant owl was all the sound that troubled the dead stillness. Tom's reflections grew oppressive. He must force some talk. So he said in a whisper. Hucky, do you believe the dead people like it for us to be here? 
Huckleberry whispered. I wished I knowed. It's awful solemn-like, ain't it? I bet it is. There was a considerable pause, while the boys canvassed this matter inwardly. Then Tom whispered. Say, Hucky, do you reckon Hoss Williams hears us talking? Of course he does. Least his spirit does. Tom, after a pause. I wish I'd said Mr. Williams. But I never meant any harm. Everybody calls him Hoss. A body can't be too particular how they talk about these your dead people, Tom. This was a damper, and conversation died again. Presently Tom seized his comrade's arm and said. S.H. What is it, Tom? And the two clung together with beating hearts. S.H. There tis again. Didn't you hear it? I. There. Now you hear it. Lord, Tom, they're coming. They're coming, sure. What'll we do? I don't know. Think they'll see us? Oh, Tom, they can see in the dark, same as cats. I wished I hadn't come. Oh, don't be afeard. I don't believe they'll bother us. We ain't doing any harm. If we keep perfectly still, maybe they won't notice us at all. I'll try to, Tom, but, Lord, I'm all of a shiver. Listen. The boys bent their heads together and scarcely breathed. A muffled sound of voices floated up from the far end of the graveyard. Look. See there. Whispered Tom. What is it? It's devil fire. Oh, Tom, this is awful. Some vague figures approached through the gloom, swinging an old-fashioned tin lantern that freckled the ground with innumerable little spangles of light. Presently Huckleberry whispered with a shudder. It's the devil sure enough. Three of them. Lordy, Tom, we're goners. Can you pray? I'll try, but don't you be afeard. They ain't going to hurt us. Now lay me down to sleep, I. S.H. What is it, Huck? They're humans. One of them is, anyway. One of them's old Muff Potter's voice. No, tain't so, is it? I bet I know it. Don't you stir nor budge. He ain't sharp enough to notice us. Drunk, the same as usual, likely, blamed old Rip. All right, I'll keep still. Now they're stuck. Can't find it. Here they come again. Now they're hot. Cold again. Hot again. Red hot. They're pinted right, this time. Say, Huck, I know another of them voices, it's Injun Joe. That's so, that murderin' half-breed. I'd druther they was devils a dern sight. What kin they be up to? The whisper died wholly out, now, for the three men had reached the grave and stood within a few feet of the boy's hiding place. Here it is, said the third voice, and the owner of it held the lantern up and revealed the face of young Dr. Robinson. Potter and Injun Joe were carrying a handbarrow with a rope and a couple of shovels on it. They cast down their load and began to open the grave. The doctor put the lantern at the head of the grave and came and sat down with his back against one of the elm trees. He was so close the boys could have touched him. Hurry, men! He said, in a low voice, the moon might come out at any moment. They growled a response and went on digging. For some time there was no noise but the grating sound of the spades discharging their freight of mold and gravel. It was very monotonous. Finally a spade struck upon the coffin with a dull woody accent, and within another minute or two the men had hoisted it out on the ground. They pried off the lid with their shovels, got out the body and dumped it rudely on the ground. The moon drifted from behind the clouds and exposed the pallid face. The barrow was got ready and the corpse placed on it, covered with a blanket, and bound to its place with the rope. Potter took out a large spring knife and cut off the dangling end of the rope and then said. Now the cuss thing's ready, sawbones, and you'll just out with another five, or here she stays. 
That's the talk. Said Injun Joe. Look here, what does this mean? Said the doctor. You required your pay in advance, and I've paid you. Yes, and you've done more than that, said Injun Joe, approaching the doctor, who was now standing. Five years ago you drove me away from your father's kitchen one night, when I come to ask for something to eat, and you said I weren't there for any good, and when I swore I'd get even with you if it took a hundred years, your father had me jailed for a vagrant. Did you think I'd forget? The engine blood ain't in me for nothing. And now I've got you, and you got to settle, you know. He was threatening the doctor, with his fist in his face, by this time. The doctor struck out suddenly and stretched the ruffian on the ground. Potter dropped his knife, and exclaimed. Here, now, don't you hit my part. And the next moment he had grappled with the doctor and the two were struggling with might and main, trampling the grass and tearing the ground with their heels. Injun Joe sprang to his feet, his eyes flaming with passion, snatched up Potter's knife, and went creeping, cat-like and stooping, round and round about the combatants, seeking an opportunity. All at once the doctor flung himself free, seized the heavy headboard of William's grave and felled Potter to the earth with it, and in the same instant the half-breed saw his chance and drove the knife to the hilt in the young man's breast. He reeled and fell partly upon Potter, flooding him with his blood, and in the same moment the clouds blotted out the dreadful spectacle and the two frightened boys went speeding away in the dark. Presently, when the moon emerged again, Injun Joe was standing over the two forms, contemplating them. The doctor murmured inarticulately, gave a long gasp or two and was still. The half-breed muttered. That score is settled, damn you. Then he robbed the body. After which he put the fatal knife in Potter's open right hand, and sat down on the dismantled coffin. Three, four, five minutes passed, and then Potter began to stir and moan. His hand closed upon the knife, he raised it, glanced at it, and let it fall, with a shudder. Then he sat up, pushing the body from him, and gazed at it, and then around him, confusedly. His eyes met Joe's. Lord, how is this, Joe? He said. It's a dirty business, said Joe, without moving. What did you do it for? I. I never done it. Look here. That kind of talk won't wash. Potter trembled and grew white. I thought I'd got sober. I'd no business to drink tonight. But it's in my head yet, worse'n when we started here. I'm all in a muddle, can't recollect anything of it, hardly. Tell me, Joe, honest, now, old feller, did I do it? Joe, I never meant to. Pon my soul at an honor, I never meant to, Joe. Tell me how it was, Joe. Oh, it's awful, and him so young and promising. Why, you two was scuffling, and he fetched you one with a headboard and you fell flat, and then up you come, all reeling and staggering like, and snatched the knife and jammed it into him, just as he fetched you another awful clip, and here you've laid, as dead as a wedge till now. Oh, I didn't know what I was a doing. I wish I may die this minute if I did. It was all on account of the whiskey and the excitement, I reckon. I never used a weepon in my life before, Joe. I've fought, but never with weepons. They'll all say that. Joe, don't tell. Say you won't tell, Joe, that's a good feller. I always liked you, Joe, and stood up for you, too. Don't you remember? You won't tell, will you, Joe? And the poor creature dropped on his knees before the stolid murderer, and clasped his appealing hands. No, you've always been fair and square with me. Muff Potter, and I won't go back on you. There, now, that's as fair as a man can say. Oh, Joe, you're an angel. I'll bless you for this the longest day I live. And Potter began to cry. Come, now, that's enough of that. This ain't any time for blubbering. You be off yonder way and I'll go this. Move, now, and don't leave any tracks behind you. 
Potter started on a trot that quickly increased to a run. The half-breed stood looking after him. He muttered. If he's as much stunned with the lick and fuddled with the rum as he had the look of being, he won't think of the knife till he's gone so far he'll be afraid to come back after it to such a place by himself, chicken heart. Two or three minutes later the murdered man, the blanketed corpse, the lidless coffin, and the open grave were under no inspection but the moons. The stillness was complete again, too. Chapter 10 The two boys flew on and on, toward the village, speechless with horror. They glanced backward over their shoulders from time to time, apprehensively, as if they feared they might be followed. Every stump that started up in their path seemed a man and an enemy, and made them catch their breath, and as they sped by some outlying cottages that lay near the village, the barking of the aroused watchdogs seemed to give wings to their feet. If we can only get to the old tannery before we break down, whispered Tom, in short catches between breaths. I can't stand it much longer. Huckleberry's hard pandings were his only reply, and the boys fixed their eyes on the goal of their hopes and bent to their work to win it. They gained steadily on it, and at last, breast to breast, they burst through the open door and fell grateful and exhausted in the sheltering shadows beyond. By and by their pulses slowed down, and Tom whispered. Huckleberry, what do you reckon'll come of this? If Dr. Robinson dies, I reckon hanging'll come of it. Do you though? Why, I know it, Tom. Tom thought a while, then he said. Who'll tell? We. What are you talking about? Suppose something happened and Injun Joe didn't hang? Why, he'd kill us some time or other, just as dead sure as we're laying here. That's just what I was thinking to myself, Huck. If anybody tells, let Muff Potter do it, if he's fool enough. He's generally drunk enough. Tom said nothing, went on thinking. Presently he whispered. Huck, Muff Potter don't know it. How can he tell? What's the reason he don't know it? Because he just got that whack when Injun Joe done it. Do you reckon he could see anything? Do you reckon he knowed anything? By hokey, that's so, Tom. And besides, look a here, maybe that whack done for him. No, taint likely, Tom. He had liquor in him, I could see that, and besides, he always has. Well, when pap's full, you might take and belt him over the head with a church and you couldn't faze him. He says so, his own self. So it's the same with Muff Potter, of course. But if a man was dead sober, I reckon maybe that whack might fetch him, I don't know. After another reflective silence, Tom said. Hucky, you sure you can keep mum? Tom, we got to keep mum. You know that. That Injun devil wouldn't make any more of drowning us than a couple of cats, if we was to squeak bout this and they didn't hang him. Now, look a here, Tom, let's take and swear to one another, that's what we got to do, swear to keep mum. I'm agreed. It's the best thing. Would you just hold hands and swear that we? Oh no, that wouldn't do for this. That's good enough for little rubbishy common things, specially with gals, cause they go back on you anyway, and blab if they get in a huff, but there order be writing bout a big thing like this. And blood. Tom's whole being applauded this idea. It was deep, and dark, and awful, the hour, the circumstances, the surroundings, were in keeping with it. He picked up a clean pine shingle that lay in the moonlight, took a little fragment of red keel out of his pocket, got the moon on his work, and painfully scrawled these lines, emphasizing each slow downstroke by clamping his tongue between his teeth, and letting up the pressure on the upstrokes. See next page. Huck Finn and Tom Sawyer swears they will keep mum about this and they wish they may drop down dead in their tracks if they ever tell and rot. Huckleberry was filled with admiration of Tom's facility in writing, and the sublimity of his language. He at once took a pin from his lapel and was going to prick his flesh, but Tom said. Hold on.
Don't do that. A pin's brass. It might have vertigris on it. What's vertigris? It's peasin. That's what it is. You just swallow some of it once, you'll see. So Tom unwound the thread from one of his needles, and each boy pricked the ball of his thumb and squeezed out a drop of blood. In time, after many squeezes, Tom managed to sign his initials, using the ball of his little finger for a pen. Then he showed Huckleberry how to make an H and an F, and the oath was complete. They buried the shingle close to the wall, with some dismal ceremonies and incantations, and the fetters that bound their tongues were considered to be locked and the key thrown away. A figure crept stealthily through a break in the other end of the ruined building, now, but they did not notice it. Tom, whispered Huckleberry, does this keep us from ever telling, always? Of course it does. It don't make any difference what happens, we got to keep mum. We'd drop down dead, don't you know that? Yes, I reckon that's so. They continued to whisper for some little time. Presently a dog set up a long, lugubrious howl just outside, within ten feet of them. The boys clasped each other suddenly, in an agony of fright. Which of us does he mean? gasped Huckleberry. I don't know, peeped through the crack. Quick. No, you, Tom. I can't, I can't do it, Huck. Please, Tom. There tis again. Oh, Lordy, I'm thankful. Whispered Tom. I know his voice. It's Bull Harbison. If Mr. Harbison owned a slave named Bull, Tom would have spoken of him as Harbison's bull, but a son or a dog of that name was Bull Harbison. Oh, that's good, I tell you, Tom, I was most scared to death, I'd have bet anything it was a stray dog. The dog howled again. The boy's heart sank once more. Oh my! That ain't no Bull Harbison! whispered Huckleberry. Do, Tom. Tom, quaking with fear, yielded, and put his eye to the crack. His whisper was hardly audible when he said. Oh, Huck! it's a stray dog. Quick, Tom, quick. Who does he mean? Huck, he must mean us both, we're right together. Oh, Tom, I reckon we're goners. I reckon there ain't no mistake bout where I'll go to. I've been so wicked. Dad fetch it. This comes of playing hooky and doing everything a feller's told not to do. I might have been good, like Sid, if I'd a tried, but no, I wouldn't, of course. But if ever I get off this time, I lay I'll just waller in Sunday schools. And Tom began to snuffle a little. You bet. And Huckleberry began to snuffle too. Consound it, Tom Sawyer, you're just old pie, long side of what I am. Oh, lordy, 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 I wished I only had half your chance. Tom choked off and whispered. Look, Hucky, look. He's got his back to us. Hucky looked, with joy in his heart. Well, he has, by jingos. Did he before? Yes, he did. But I, like a fool, never thought. Oh, this is bully, you know. Now who can he mean? The howling stopped. Tom pricked up his ears. S.H. What's that? He whispered. Sounds like, like hogs grunting. No, it's somebody snoring, Tom. That is it. Whereabouts is it, Huck? I believe it's down at t'other end. Sounds so, anyway. Pap used to sleep there, sometimes, long with the hogs, but laws bless you, he just lifts things when he snores. Besides, I reckon he ain't ever coming back to this town anymore. The spirit of adventure rose in the boy's souls once more. Hucky, do you dast to go if I lead? I don't like to, much. Tom, suppose it's Injun Joe. Tom quailed. But presently the temptation rose up strong again and the boys agreed to try, with the understanding that they would take to their heels if the snoring stopped. 
So they went tiptoeing stealthily down, the one behind the other. When they had got to within five steps of the snorer, Tom stepped on a stick, and it broke with a sharp snap. The man moaned, writhed a little, and his face came into the moonlight. It was Muff Potter. The boys' hearts had stood still, and their hopes too, when the man moved, but their fears passed away now. They tiptoed out, through the broken weatherboarding, and stopped at a little distance to exchange a parting word. That long, lugubrious howl rose on the night air again. They turned and saw the strange dog standing within a few feet of where Potter was lying, and facing Potter, with his nose pointing heavenward. Oh, Gemini, it's him! exclaimed both boys, in a breath. Say, Tom, they say a stray dog come howling around Johnny Miller's house, bout midnight, as much as two weeks ago, and a whippoorwill come in and lit on the banisters and sung, the very same evening, and there ain't anybody dead there yet. Well, I know that. And suppose there ain't. Didn't Gracie Miller fall in the kitchen fire and burn herself terrible the very next Saturday? Yes, but she ain't dead. And what's more, she's getting better, too. All right, you wait and see. She's a goner, just as dead sure as Muff Potter's a goner. That's what the niggers say, and they know all about these kind of things, Huck. Then they separated, cogitating. When Tom crept in at his bedroom window the night was almost spent. He undressed with excessive caution, and fell asleep congratulating himself that nobody knew of his escapade. He was not aware that the gently snoring Sid was awake, and had been so for an hour. When Tom awoke, Sid was dressed and gone. There was a late look in the light, a late sense in the atmosphere. He was startled. Why had he not been called, persecuted till he was up, as usual? The thought filled him with bodings. Within five minutes he was dressed and downstairs, feeling sore and drowsy. The family were still at table, but they had finished breakfast. There was no voice of rebuke, but there were averted eyes, there was a silence and an air of solemnity that struck a chill to the culprit's heart. He sat down and tried to seem gay, but it was uphill work, it roused no smile, no response, and he lapsed into silence and let his heart sink down to the depths. After breakfast his aunt took him aside, and Tom almost brightened in the hope that he was going to be flogged, but it was not so. His aunt wept over him and asked him how he could go and break her old heart so, and finally told him to go on, and ruin himself and bring her grey hairs with sorrow to the grave, for it was no use for her to try any more. This was worse than a thousand whippings, and Tom's heart was sorer now than his body. He cried, he pleaded for forgiveness, promised to reform over and over again, and then received his dismissal, feeling that he had won but an imperfect forgiveness and established but a feeble confidence. He left the presence too miserable to even feel revengeful towards it, and so the latter's prompt retreat through the back gate was unnecessary. He moped to school gloomy and sad, and took his flogging, along with Joe Harper, for playing hooky the day before, with the air of one whose heart was busy with heavier woes and wholly dead to trifles. Then he betook himself to his seat, rested his elbows on his desk and his jaws in his hands, and stared at the wall with the stony stare of suffering that has reached the limit and can no further go. His elbow was pressing against some hard substance. After a long time he slowly and sadly changed his position, and took up this object with a sigh. It was in a paper. He unrolled it. A long, lingering, colossal sigh followed, and his heart broke. It was his brass and iron knob. This final feather broke the camel's back. Chapter 11 Close upon the hour of noon the whole village was suddenly electrified with the ghastly news. No need of the as yet undreamed of telegraph, the tale flew from man to man, from group to group, from house to house, with little less than telegraphic speed. Of course the schoolmaster gave holiday for that afternoon, the town would have thought strangely of him if he had not. A gory knife had been found close to the murdered man, 
and it had been recognized by somebody as belonging to Muff Potter, so the story ran. And it was said that a belated citizen had come upon Potter washing himself in the branch about one or two o'clock in the morning, and that Potter had at once sneaked off, suspicious circumstances, especially the washing which was not a habit with Potter. It was also said that the town had been ransacked for this murderer, the public are not slow in the matter of sifting evidence and arriving at a verdict, but that he could not be found. Horsemen had departed down all the roads in every direction, and the sheriff was confident that he would be captured before night. All the town was drifting toward the graveyard. Tom's heartbreak vanished and he joined the procession, not because he would not a thousand times rather go anywhere else, but because an awful, unaccountable fascination drew him on. Arrived at the dreadful place, he wormed his small body through the crowd and saw the dismal spectacle. It seemed to him an age since he was there before. Somebody pinched his arm. He turned, and his eyes met Huckleberry's. Then both looked elsewhere at once, and wondered if anybody had noticed anything in their mutual glance. But everybody was talking, and intent upon the grisly spectacle before them. Poor fellow! Poor young fellow! This ought to be a lesson to grave robbers. Muff Potter'll hang for this if they catch him. This was the drift of remark, and the minister said, it was a judgment, his hand is here. Now Tom shivered from head to heel, for his eye fell upon the stolid face of Injun Joe. At this moment the crowd began to sway and struggle, and voices shouted, it's him. It's him. He's coming himself. Who? Who? From twenty voices. Muff Potter. Hello, he stopped. Look out, he's turning. Don't let him get away. People in the branches of the trees over Tom's head said he wasn't trying to get away, he only looked doubtful and perplexed. Infernal impudence. Said a bystander, wanted to come and take a quiet look at his work, I reckon, didn't expect any company. The crowd fell apart, now, and the sheriff came through, ostentatiously leading Potter by the arm. The poor fellow's face was haggard, and his eyes showed the fear that was upon him. When he stood before the murdered man, he shook his with a palsy, and he put his face in his hands and burst into tears. I didn't do it, friends, he sobbed, pon my word and honor I never done it. Who's accused you? shouted a voice. This shot seemed to carry home. Potter lifted his face and looked around him with a pathetic hopelessness in his eyes. He saw Injun Joe, and exclaimed. Oh, Injun Joe, you promised me you'd never. Is that your knife? And it was thrust before him by the sheriff. Potter would have fallen if they had not caught him and eased him to the ground. Then he said. Something told me t if I didn't come back and get, he shuddered, then waved his nerveless hand with a vanquished gesture and said, tell him, Joe, tell him, it ain't any use anymore. Then Huckleberry and Tom stood dumb and staring, and heard the stony-hearted liar reel off his serene statement, they expecting every moment that the clear sky would deliver God's lightnings upon his head, and wondering to see how long the stroke was delayed. And when he had finished and still stood alive and whole, their wavering impulse to break their oath and save the poor betrayed prisoner's life faded and vanished away, for plainly this miscreant had sold himself to Satan, and it would be fatal to meddle with the property of such a power as that. Why didn't you leave? What did you want to come here for? Somebody said. I couldn't help it, I couldn't help it, Potter moaned. I wanted to run away, but I couldn't seem to come anywhere but here. And he fell to sobbing again. Injun Joe repeated his statement, just as calmly, a few minutes afterward on the inquest, under oath, and the boys, seeing that the lightnings were still withheld, were confirmed in their belief that Joe had sold himself to the devil. He was now become, to them, the most balefully interesting object they had ever looked upon, and they could not take their fascinated eyes from his face. They inwardly resolved to watch him nights, when opportunity should offer, in the hope of getting a glimpse of his dread master. 
Injun Joe helped to raise the body of the murdered man and put it in a wagon for removal, and it was whispered through the shuddering crowd that the wound bled a little. The boys thought that this happy circumstance would turn suspicion in the right direction, but they were disappointed, for more than one villager remarked. It was within three feet of Muff Potter when it done it. Tom's fearful secret and gnawing conscience disturbed his sleep for as much as a week after this, and at breakfast one morning Sid said. Tom, you pitch around and talk in your sleep so much that you keep me awake half the time. Tom blanched and dropped his eyes. It's a bad sign, said Aunt Polly, gravely. What you got on your mind, Tom? Nothing. Nothing tea I know of. But the boy's hand shook so that he spilled his coffee. And you do talk such stuff, Sid said. Last night you said, it's blood, it's blood, that's what it is. You said that over and over. And you said, don't torment me so, I'll tell. Tell what? What is it you'll tell? Everything was swimming before Tom. There is no telling what might have happened, now, but luckily the concern passed out of Aunt Polly's face and she came to Tom's relief without knowing it. She said. Show. It's that dreadful murder. I dream about it most every night myself. Sometimes I dream it's me that done it. Mary said she had been affected much the same way. Sid seemed satisfied. Tom got out of the presence as quick as he plausibly could, and after that he complained of toothache for a week, and tied up his jaws every night. He never knew that Sid lay nightly watching, and frequently slipped the bandage free, and then leaned on his elbow listening a good while at a time, and afterwards slipped the bandage back to its place again. Tom's distress of mind wore off gradually and the toothache grew irksome and was discarded. If Sid really managed to make anything out of Tom's disjointed mutterings, he kept it to himself. It seemed to Tom that his schoolmates never would get done holding inquests on dead cats, and thus keeping his trouble present to his mind. Sid noticed that Tom never was coroner at one of these inquiries, though it had been his habit to take the lead in all new enterprises, he noticed, too, that Tom never acted as a witness, and that was strange, and Sid did not overlook the fact that Tom even showed a marked aversion to these inquests, and always avoided them when he could. Sid marveled, but said nothing. However, even inquests went out of vogue at last, and ceased to torture Tom's conscience. Every day or two, during this time of sorrow, Tom watched his opportunity and went to the little grated jail window and smuggled such small comforts through to the murderer as he could get hold of. The jail was a trifling little brick den that stood in a marsh at the edge of the village, and no guards were afforded for it, indeed, it was seldom occupied. These offerings greatly helped to ease Tom's conscience. The villagers had a strong desire to tar and feather Injun Joe and ride him on a rail, for body snatching, but so formidable was his character that nobody could be found who was willing to take the lead in the matter so it was dropped. He had been careful to begin both of his inquest statements with a fight, without confessing the grave robbery that preceded it, therefore it was deemed wisest not to try the case in the courts at present. Chapter 12 One of the reasons why Tom's mind had drifted away from its secret troubles was, that it had found a new and weighty matter to interest itself about. Becky Thatcher had stopped coming to school. Tom had struggled with his pride a few days, and tried to whistle her down the wind, but failed. He began to find himself hanging around her father's house, nights, and feeling very miserable. She was ill. What if she should die? There was distraction in the thought. He no longer took an interest in war, nor even in piracy. The charm of life was gone, there was nothing but dreariness left. He put his hoop away and his bat, there was no joy in them anymore. His aunt was concerned. She began to try all manner of remedies on him. She was one of those people who are infatuated with patent medicines and all newfangled methods of producing health or mending it. She was an inveterate experimenter in these things. When something fresh in this line came out she was in a fever, right away, to try it, not on herself, 
for she was never ailing, but on anybody else that came handy. She was a subscriber for all the health periodicals and phrenological frauds, and the solemn ignorance they were inflated with was breath to her nostrils. All the rot they contained about ventilation, and how to go to bed, and how to get up, and what to eat, and what to drink, and how much exercise to take, and what frame of mind to keep oneself in, and what sort of clothing to wear, was all gospel to her, and she never observed that her health journals of the current month customarily upset everything they had recommended the month before. She was as simple-hearted and honest as the day was long, and so she was an easy victim. She gathered together her quack periodicals and her quack medicines, and thus armed with death, went about on her pale horse, metaphorically speaking, with hell following after. But she never suspected that she was not an angel of healing in the balm of Gilead in disguise, to the suffering neighbors. The water treatment was new, now, and Tom's low condition was a windfall to her. She had him out at daylight every morning, stood him up in the woodshed and drowned him with a deluge of cold water, then she scrubbed him down with a towel like a file, and so brought him to, then she rolled him up in a wet sheet and put him away under blankets till she sweated his soul clean and the yellow stains of it came through his pores as Tom said. Yet notwithstanding all this, the boy grew more and more melancholy and pale and dejected. She added hot baths, sits baths, shower baths, and plunges. The boy remained as dismal as a hearse. She began to assist the water with a slim oatmeal diet and blister plasters. She calculated his capacity as she would a jugs, and filled him up every day with quack cure-alls. Tom had become indifferent to persecution by this time. This phase filled the old lady's heart with consternation. This indifference must be broken up at any cost. Now she heard a painkiller for the first time. She ordered a lot at once. She tasted it and was filled with gratitude. It was simply fire in a liquid form. She dropped the water treatment and everything else, and pinned her faith to painkiller. She gave Tom a teaspoonful and watched with the deepest anxiety for the result. Her troubles were instantly at rest, her soul at peace again, for the indifference was broken up. The boy could not have shown a wilder, heartier interest, if she had built a fire under him. Tom felt that it was time to wake up, this sort of life might be romantic enough, in his blighted condition, but it was getting to have too little sentiment and too much distracting variety about it. So he thought over various plans for relief, and finally hit upon that of professing to be fond of painkiller. He asked for it so often that he became a nuisance, and his aunt ended by telling him to help himself and quit bothering her. If it had been Sid, she would have had no misgivings to alloy her delight, but since it was Tom, she watched the bottle clandestinely. She found that the medicine did really diminish, but it did not occur to her that the boy was mending the health of a crack in the sitting room floor with it. One day Tom was in the act of dosing the crack when his aunt's yellow cat came along, purring, eyeing the teaspoon avariciously, and begging for a taste. Tom said. Don't ask for it unless you want it, Peter. But Peter signified that he did want it. You better make sure. Peter was sure. Now you've asked for it, and I'll give it to you, because there ain't anything mean about me, but if you find you don't like it, you mustn't blame anybody but your own self. Peter was agreeable. So Tom pried his mouth open and poured down the painkiller. Peter sprang a couple of yards in the air, and then delivered a war whoop and set off round and round the room, banging against furniture, upsetting flowerpots, and making general havoc. Next he rose on his hind feet and pranced around, in a frenzy of enjoyment, with his head over his shoulder and his voice proclaiming his unappeasable happiness. Then he went tearing around the house again spreading chaos and destruction in his path. Aunt Polly entered in time to see him throw a few double somersets, deliver a final mighty hurrah, and sail through the open window, carrying the rest of the flower pots with him. The old lady stood petrified with astonishment, peering over her glasses, Tom lay on the floor expiring with laughter. Tom, what on earth ails that cat? 
I don't know, and gasped the boy. Why, I never see anything like it. What did make him act so? Did I don't know, Aunt Polly, cats always act so when they're having a good time. They do, do they? There was something in the tone that made Tom apprehensive. Yes'm. That is, I believe they do. You do? Yes'm. The old lady was bending down, Tom watching, with interest emphasized by anxiety. Too late he divined her drift. The handle of the telltale teaspoon was visible under the bed valance. Aunt Polly took it, held it up. Tom winced, and dropped his eyes. Aunt Polly raised him by the usual handle, his ear, and cracked his head soundly with her thimble. Now, sir, what did you want to treat that poor dumb beast so, for? I'd done it out of pity for him, because he hadn't any aunt. Hadn't any aunt. You numbskull. What has that got to do with it? Heaps. Because if he'd had one she'd a burnt him out herself. She'd a roasted his bowels out of him without any more feeling than if he was a human. Aunt Polly felt a sudden pang of remorse. This was putting the thing in a new light. What was cruelty to a cat might be cruelty to a boy, too. She began to soften. She felt sorry. Her eyes watered a little, and she put her hand on Tom's head and said gently. I was meaning for the best, Tom. And, Tom, it did do you good. Tom looked up in her face with just a perceptible twinkle peeping through his gravity. I know you was meaning for the best, Auntie, and so was I with Peter. It done him good, too. I never see him get around so since. Oh, go along with you, Tom, before you aggravate me again. And you try and see if you can't be a good boy, for once, and you needn't take any more medicine. Tom reached school ahead of time. It was noticed that this strange thing had been occurring every day latterly. And now, as usual of late, he hung about the gate of the schoolyard instead of playing with his comrades. He was sick, he said, and he looked it. He tried to seem to be looking everywhere but whether he really was looking, down the road. Presently Jeff Thatcher hove in sight, and Tom's face lighted, he gazed a moment and then turned sorrowfully away. When Jeff arrived, Tom accosted him, and led up warily to opportunities for remark about Becky, but the giddy lad never could see the bait. Tom watched and watched, hoping whenever a frisking frock came in sight, and hating the owner of it as soon as he saw she was not the right one. At last frock ceased to appear, and he dropped hopelessly into the dumps, he entered the empty schoolhouse and sat down to suffer. Then one more frock passed in at the gate, and Tom's heart gave a great bound. The next instant he was out, and going on like an Indian, yelling, laughing, chasing boys, jumping over the fence at risk of life and limb, throwing handsprings, standing on his head, doing all the heroic things he could conceive of, and keeping a furtive eye out, all the while, to see if Becky Thatcher was noticing. But she seemed to be unconscious of it all, she never looked. Could it be possible that she was not aware that he was there? He carried his exploits to her immediate vicinity, came more whooping around, snatched a boy's cap, hurled it to the roof of the schoolhouse, broke through a group of boys, tumbling them in every direction, and fell sprawling, himself, under Becky's nose, almost upsetting her, and she turned, with her nose in the air, and he heard her say, MF. Some people think they're mighty smart, always showing off. Tom's cheeks burned. He gathered himself up and sneaked off, crushed and crestfallen. Chapter 13 Tom's mind was made up now. He was gloomy and desperate. He was a forsaken, friendless boy, he said, nobody loved him. When they found out what they had driven him to, perhaps they would be sorry. He had tried to do right and get along, but they would not let him, since nothing would do them but to be rid of him, let it be so, and let them blame him for the consequences, why shouldn't they? What right had the friendless to complain? Yes, they had forced him to it at last, he would lead a life of crime. There was no choice. 
by this time he was far down Meadow Lane, and the Belfer school to take up tinkled faintly upon his ear. He sobbed, now, to think he should never, never hear that old familiar sound any more, it was very hard, but it was forced on him, since he was driven out into the cold world, he must submit, but he forgave them. Then the sobs came thick and fast. Just at this point he met his soul's sworn comrade, Joe Harper, hard-eyed, and with evidently a great and dismal purpose in his heart. Plainly here were two souls with but a single thought. Tom, wiping his eyes with his sleeve, began to blubber out something about a resolution to escape from hard usage and lack of sympathy at home by roaming abroad into the great world never to return, and ended by hoping that Joe would not forget him. But it transpired that this was a request which Joe had just been going to make of Tom, and had come to hunt him up for that purpose. His mother had whipped him for drinking some cream which he had never tasted and knew nothing about, it was plain that she was tired of him and wished him to go, if she felt that way, there was nothing for him to do but succumb, he hoped she would be happy, and never regret having driven her poor boy out into the unfeeling world to suffer and die. As the two boys walked sorrowing along, they made a new compact to stand by each other and be brothers and never separate till death relieved them of their troubles. Then they began to lay their plans. Joe was for being a hermit and living on crusts in a remote cave, and dying, sometime, of cold and want and grief, but after listening to Tom, he conceded that there were some conspicuous advantages about a life of crime, and so he consented to be a pirate. Three miles below St. Petersburg, at a point where the Mississippi River was a trifle over a mile wide, there was a long, narrow, wooded island, with a shallow bar at the head of it, and this offered well as a rendezvous. It was not inhabited, it lay far over toward the further shore, abreast a dense and almost wholly unpeopled forest. So Jackson's Island was chosen. Who were to be the subjects of their piracies was a matter that did not occur to them. Then they hunted up Huckleberry Finn, and he joined them promptly, for all careers were one to him. He was indifferent. They presently separated to meet at a lonely spot on the riverbank two miles above the village at the favorite hour, which was midnight. There was a small log raft there which they meant to capture. Each would bring hooks and lines, and such provision as he could steal in the most dark and mysterious way, as became outlaws. And before the afternoon was done, they had all managed to enjoy the sweet glory of spreading the fact that pretty soon the town would hear something. All who got this vague hint were cautioned to be mum and wait. About midnight Tom arrived with a boiled ham and a few trifles, and stopped in a dense undergrowth on a small bluff overlooking the meeting place. It was starlight, and very still. The mighty river lay like an ocean at rest. Tom listened a moment, but no sound disturbed the quiet. Then he gave a low, distinct whistle. It was answered from under the bluff. Tom whistled twice more, these signals were answered in the same way. Then a guarded voice said. Who goes there? Tom Sawyer, the Black Avenger of the Spanish Main. Name your names. Huck Finn the Red-Handed, and Joe Harper the Terror of the Seas. Tom had furnished these titles, from his favorite literature. Tis well. Give the countersign. Two hoarse whispers delivered the same awful word simultaneously to the brooding night. Blood. Then Tom tumbled his ham over the bluff and let himself down after it, tearing both skin and clothes to some extent in the effort. There was an easy, comfortable path along the shore under the bluff, but it lacked the advantages of difficulty and danger so valued by a pirate. The terror of the seas had brought a side of bacon, and had about worn himself out with getting it there. Finn the red-handed had stolen a skillet and a quantity of half-cured leaf tobacco, and had also brought a few corn cobs to make pipes with. But none of the pirates smoked or chewed but himself. The Black Avenger of the Spanish Main said it would never do to start without some fire. That was a wise thought, matches were hardly known there in that day. They saw a fire smoldering upon a great raft a hundred yards above, and they went stealthily thither and helped themselves to a chunk. 
They made an imposing adventure of it, saying, hissed. Every now and then, and suddenly halting with finger on lip, moving with hands on imaginary dagger hilts, and giving orders in dismal whispers that if the foe stirred, to let him have it to the hilt, because dead men tell no tales. They knew well enough that the raftsmen were all down at the village laying in stores or having a spree, but still that was no excuse for their conducting this thing in an unpiratical way. They shoved off, presently, Tom in command, Huck at the after oar and Joe at the forward. Tom stood amidships, gloomy-browed, and with folded arms, and gave his orders in a low, stern whisper. Luff, and bring her to the wind. Aye aye, sir. Steady, steady why why why. Steady it is, sir. Let her go off a point. Point it is, sir. As the boys steadily and monotonously drove the raft toward midstream it was no doubt understood that these orders were given only for style, and were not intended to mean anything in particular. What sail she carrying? Courses, topsails, and flying jib, sir. Send the riles up. Lay out aloft, there, half a dozen of ye, for topmast stunsel. Lively, now. Aye aye, sir. Shake out that main togalanzel. Sheets and braces. Now my hearties. Aye aye, sir. Helma Lee, hard a port. Stand by to meet her when she comes. Port, port. Now, men. With a will. Stead why why why. Steady it is, sir. The raft drew beyond the middle of the river, the boys pointed her head right and then lay on their oars. The river was not high, so there was not more than a two or three mile current. Hardly a word was said during the next three quarters of an hour. Now the raft was passing before the distant town. Two or three glimmering lights showed where it lay, peacefully sleeping, beyond in the vague vast sweep of star-gemmed water, unconscious of the tremendous event that was happening. The Black Avenger stood still with folded arms, looking his last upon the scene of his former joys and his later sufferings, and wishing she could see him now, abroad on the wild sea, facing peril and death with dauntless heart, going to his doom with a grim smile on his lips. It was but a small strain on his imagination to remove Jackson's island beyond a shot of the village, and so he looked his last with a broken and satisfied heart. The other pirates were looking their last, too, and they all looked so long that they came near letting the current drift them out of the range of the island. But they discovered the danger in time, and made shift to avert it. About two o'clock in the morning the raft grounded on the bar two hundred yards above the head of the island, and they waded back and forth until they had landed their freight. Part of the little raft's belongings consisted of an old sail, and this they spread over a nook in the bushes for a tent to shelter their provisions, but they themselves would sleep in the open air in good weather, as became outlaws. They built a fire against the side of a great log twenty or thirty steps within the somber depths of the forest, and then cooked some bacon in the frying pan for supper, and used up half of the corn pone stock they had brought. It seemed glorious sport to be feasting in that wild, freeway in the virgin forest of an unexplored and uninhabited island, far from the haunts of men, and they said they never would return to civilization. The climbing fire lit up their faces and threw its ruddy glare upon the pillared tree trunks of their forest temple, and upon the varnished foliage and festooning vines. When the last crisp slice of bacon was gone, and the last allowance of corn pone devoured, the boys stretched themselves out on the grass, filled with contentment. They could have found a cooler place, but they would not deny themselves such a romantic feature as the roasting campfire. Ain't it gay? said Joe. It's nuts, said Tom. What would the boys say if they could see us? Say? Well, they'd just die to be here, hey, Hucky. I reckon so, said Huckleberry, anyways, I'm suited. I don't want nothing better in this. I don't ever get enough to eat, genially, and here they can't come and pick at a feller and bullyrag him so. 
it's just the life for me, said Tom. You don't have to get up, mornings, and you don't have to go to school, and wash, and all that blame foolishness. You see a pirate don't have to do anything, Joe, when he's ashore, but a hermit he has to be praying considerable, and then he don't have any fun, anyway, all by himself that way. Oh yes, that's so, said Joe, but I hadn't thought much about it, you know. I'd a good deal rather be a pirate, now that I've tried it. You see, said Tom, people don't go much on hermits, nowadays, like they used to in old times, but a pirate's always respected. And a hermit's got to sleep on the hardest place he can find, and put sackcloth and ashes on his head, and stand out in the rain, and... What does he put sackcloth and ashes on his head for? inquired Huck. I don't know. But they've got to do it. Hermits always do. You'd have to do that if you was a hermit. Durned if I would, said Huck. Well, what would you do? I don't know. But I wouldn't do that. Why, Huck, you'd have to. How'd you get around it? Why, I just wouldn't stand it. I'd run away. Run away. Well, you would be a nice old slouch of a hermit. You'd be a disgrace. The red-handed made no response, being better employed. He had finished gouging out a cob, and now he fitted a weed stem to it, loaded it with tobacco, and was pressing a coal to the charge and blowing a cloud of fragrant smoke, he was in the full bloom of luxurious contentment. The other pirates envied him this majestic vice, and secretly resolved to acquire it shortly. Presently Huck said. What does pirates have to do? Tom said. Oh, they have just a bully time, take ships and burn them, and get the money and bury it in awful places in their island where there's ghosts and things to watch it, and kill everybody in the ships, make them walk a plank. And they carry the women to the island, said Joe, they don't kill the women. No, assented Tom, they don't kill the women, they're too noble. And the women's always beautiful, too. And don't they wear the bulliest clothes? Oh no. All gold and silver and diamonds, said Joe, with enthusiasm. Who? said Huck. Why, the pirates? Huck scanned his own clothing forlornly. I reckon I ain't dressed fit in for a pirate, said he, with a regretful pathos in his voice, but I ain't got none but these. But the other boys told him the fine clothes would come fast enough, after they should have begun their adventures. They made him understand that his poor rags would do to begin with, though it was customary for wealthy pirates to start with a proper wardrobe. Gradually their talk died out and drowsiness began to steal upon the eyelids of the little waifs. The pipe dropped from the fingers of the red-handed, and he slept the sleep of the conscience-free and the weary. The terror of the seas and the black avenger of the Spanish main had more difficulty in getting to sleep. They said their prayers inwardly, and lying down, since there was nobody there with authority to make them kneel and recite aloud, in truth, they had a mind not to say them at all, but they were afraid to proceed to such lengths as that, lest they might call down a sudden and special thunderbolt from heaven. Then at once they reached and hovered upon the imminent verge of sleep, but an intruder came, now, that would not down. It was conscience. They began to feel a vague fear that they had been doing wrong to run away, and next they thought of the stolen meat, and then the real torture came. They tried to argue it away by reminding conscience that they had purloined sweetmeats and apple scores of times, but conscience was not to be appeased by such thin plausibilities, it seemed to them, in the end, that there was no getting around the stubborn fact that taking sweetmeats was only hooking, while taking bacon and hams and such valuables was plain simple stealing, and there was a command against that in the Bible. So they inwardly resolved that so long as they remained in the business, their piracy should not again be sullied with the crime of stealing. Then conscience granted a truce, and these curiously inconsistent pirates fell peacefully to sleep. Chapter 14 When Tom awoke in the morning, he wondered where he was. He sat up and rubbed his eyes and looked around. 
Then he comprehended. It was the cool grey dawn, and there was a delicious sense of repose and peace in the deep pervading calm and silence of the woods. Not a leaf stirred, not a sound obtruded upon great nature's meditation. Beaded dewdrops stood upon the leaves and grasses. A white layer of ashes covered the fire, and a thin blue breath of smoke rose straight into the air. Joe and Huck still slept. Now, far away in the woods a bird called, another answered, presently the hammering of a woodpecker was heard. Gradually the cool dim grey of the morning whitened, and as gradually sounds multiplied and life manifested itself. The marvel of nature shaking off sleep and going to work unfolded itself to the musing boy. A little green worm came crawling over a dewy leaf, lifting two-thirds of his body into the air from time to time and sniffing around, then proceeding again, for he was measuring, Tom said, and when the worm approached him, of its own accord, he sat as still as a stone, with his hopes rising and falling, by turns, as the creature still came toward him or seemed inclined to go elsewhere, and when at last it considered a painful moment with its curved body in the air and then came decisively down upon Tom's leg and began a journey over him, his whole heart was glad, for that meant that he was going to have a new suit of clothes, without the shadow of a doubt a gaudy piratical uniform. Now a procession of ants appeared, from nowhere in particular, and went about their labors, one struggled manfully by with a dead spider five times as big as itself in its arms, and lugged it straight up a tree trunk. A brown-spotted ladybug climbed the dizzy height of a grass blade, and Tom bent down close to it and said, Ladybug, ladybug, fly away home, your house is on fire, your children's alone, and she took wing and went off to see about it, which did not surprise the boy for he knew of old that this insect was credulous about conflagrations, and he had practiced upon its simplicity more than once. A tumblebug came next, heaving sturdily its ball, and Tom touched the creature, to see it shut its legs against its body and pretend to be dead. The birds were fairly riding by this time. A catbird, the northern mocker, lit in a tree over Tom's head, and trilled out her imitations of her neighbors in a rapture of enjoyment, then a shrill jay swept down, a flash of blue flame, and stopped on a twig almost within the boy's reach, cocked his head to one side and eyed the strangers with a consuming curiosity, a grey squirrel and a big fellow of the fox kind came scurrying along, sitting up at intervals to inspect and chatter at the boys, for the wild things had probably never seen a human being before and scarcely knew whether to be afraid or not. All nature was wide awake and stirring, now, long lances of sunlight pierced down through the dense foliage far and near, and a few butterflies came fluttering upon the scene. Tom stirred up the other pirates and they all clattered away with a shout, and in a minute or two were stripped and chasing after and tumbling over each other in the shallow limpid water of the white sandbar. They felt no longing for the little village sleeping in the distance beyond the majestic waste of water. A vagrant current or a slight rise in the river had carried off their raft, but this only gratified them, since its going was something like burning the bridge between them and civilization. They came back to camp wonderfully refreshed, glad-hearted, and ravenous, and they soon had the campfire blazing up again. Huck found a spring of clear cold water close by, and the boys made cups of broad oak or hickory leaves, and felt that water, sweetened with such a wildwood charm as that, would be a good enough substitute for coffee. While Joe was slicing bacon for breakfast, Tom and Huck asked him to hold on a minute, they stepped to a promising nook in the riverbank and threw in their lines, almost immediately they had reward. Joe had not had time to get impatient before they were back again with some handsome base, a couple of sun perch and a small catfish, provisions enough for quite a family. They fried the fish with the bacon, and were astonished, for no fish had ever seemed so delicious before. They did not know that the quicker a freshwater fish is on the fire after he is caught the better he is, and they reflected little upon what a sauce open-air sleeping, open-air exercise, bathing, and a large ingredient of hunger make, too. They lay around in the shade, after breakfast, while Huck had a smoke, 
and then went off through the woods on an exploring expedition. They tramped gaily along, over decaying logs, through tangled underbrush, among solemn monarchs of the forest, hung from their crowns to the ground with a drooping regalia of grapevines. Now and then they came upon snug nooks carpeted with grass and jeweled with flowers. They found plenty of things to be delighted with, but nothing to be astonished at. They discovered that the island was about three miles long and a quarter of a mile wide, and that the shore it lay closest to was only separated from it by a narrow channel hardly two hundred yards wide. They took a swim about every hour, so it was close upon the middle of the afternoon when they got back to camp. They were too hungry to stop to fish, but they fared sumptuously upon cold ham, and then threw themselves down in the shade to talk. But the talk soon began to drag, and then died. The stillness, the solemnity that brooded in the woods, and the sense of loneliness, began to tell upon the spirits of the boys. They fell to thinking. A sort of undefined longing crept upon them. This took dim shape, presently, it was budding homesickness. Even Finn the red-handed was dreaming of his doorsteps and empty hogsheads. But they were all ashamed of their weakness, and none was brave enough to speak his thought. For some time, now, the boys had been dully conscious of a peculiar sound in the distance, just as one sometimes is of the ticking of a clock which he takes no distinct note of. But now this mysterious sound became more pronounced, and forced a recognition. The boys started, glanced at each other, and then each assumed a listening attitude. There was a long silence, profound and unbroken, then a deep, sullen boom came floating down out of the distance. What is it? exclaimed Joe, under his breath. I wonder, said Tom in a whisper. Tink thunder, said Huckleberry, in an awed tone, because thunder. Hark! said Tom. Listen, don't talk. They waited a time that seemed an age, and then the same muffled boom troubled the solemn hush. Let's go and see. They sprang to their feet and hurried to the shore toward the town. They parted the bushes on the bank and peered out over the water. The little steam ferryboat was about a mile below the village, drifting with the current. Her broad deck seemed crowded with people. There were a great many skiffs rowing about or floating with the stream in the neighborhood of the ferryboat, but the boys could not determine what the men in them were doing. Presently a great jet of white smoke burst from the ferryboat side, and as it expanded and rose in a lazy cloud, that same dull throb of sound was borne to the listeners again. I know now! exclaimed Tom, somebody's drowned. That's it! said Huck, they'd done that last summer, when Bill Turner got drowned, they shoot a cannon over the water, and that makes him come up to the top. Yes, and they take loaves of bread and put quicksilver in them and set em afloat, and wherever there's anybody that's drowned, they'll float right there and stop. Yes, I've heard about that, said Joe. I wonder what makes the bread do that. Oh, it ain't the bread, so much, said Tom, I reckon it's mostly what they say over it before they started out. But they don't say anything over it, said Huck. I've seen him and they don't. Well, that's funny, said Tom. But maybe they say it to themselves. Of course they do. Anybody might know that. The other boys agreed that there was reason in what Tom said, because an ignorant lump of bread, uninstructed by an incantation, could not be expected to act very intelligently when set upon an errand of such gravity. By jings, I wish I was over there, now, said Joe. I do too, said Huck, I'd give heaps to know who it is. The boys still listened and watched. Presently a revealing thought flashed through Tom's mind, and he exclaimed. Boys, I know who's drowned, it's us. They felt like heroes in an instant. Here was a gorgeous triumph, they were missed, they were mourned, hearts were breaking on their account, tears were being shed, accusing memories of unkindness to these poor lost lads were rising up, and unavailing regrets and remorse were being indulged, and best of all, the departed were the talk of the whole town, and the envy of all the boys, 
as far as this dazzling notoriety was concerned. This was fine. It was worthwhile to be a pirate, after all. As twilight drew on, the ferryboat went back to her accustomed business and the skiffs disappeared. The pirates returned to camp. They were jubilant with vanity over their new grandeur and the illustrious trouble they were making. They caught fish, cooked supper and ate it, and then fell to guessing at what the village was thinking and saying about them, and the pictures they drew of the public distress on their account were gratifying to look upon, from their point of view. But when the shadows of night closed them in, they gradually ceased to talk, and sat gazing into the fire, with their minds evidently wandering elsewhere. The excitement was gone, now, and Tom and Joe could not keep back thoughts of certain persons at home who were not enjoying this fine frolic as much as they were. Misgivings came, they grew troubled and unhappy, a sigh or two escaped, unawares. By and by Joe timidly ventured upon a roundabout feeler as to how the others might look upon a return to civilization, not right now, but. Tom withered him with derision. Huck, being uncommitted as yet, joined in with Tom, and the waverer quickly explained, and was glad to get out of the scrape with as little taint of chicken-hearted homesickness clinging to his garments as he could. Mutiny was effectually laid to rest for the moment. As the night deepened, Huck began to nod, and presently to snore. Joe followed next. Tom lay upon his elbow motionless, for some time, watching the two intently. At last he got up cautiously, on his knees, and went searching among the grass and the flickering reflections flung by the campfire. He picked up and inspected several large semi-cylinders of the thin white bark of a sycamore, and finally chose two which seemed to suit him. Then he knelt by the fire and painfully wrote something upon each of these with his red keel, one he rolled up and put in his jacket pocket, and the other he put in Joe's hat and removed it to a little distance from the owner. And he also put into the hat certain schoolboy treasures of almost inestimable value, among them a lump of chalk, an India rubber ball, three fish hooks, and one of that kind of marbles known as a sure enough crystal. Then he tiptoed his way cautiously among the trees till he felt that he was out of hearing, and straightway broke into a keen run in the direction of the sandbar.